The process of applied functional science is the transformation of the notion into the motion. From the Gray Institute, I'm John, and this is the Gray Institute Podcast. Gray Institute is internationally acclaimed for its innovation, development, mastery, and delivery of Applied Functional Science, AFS. AFS is based on scientific truth, not theory, of how the human body moves in all three planes. AFS allows movement professionals like you to apply the best, most effective, and most efficient movements to any individual based on specific needs and goals. For 40 years, through training, education, and mentorship, Gray Institute has equipped over 150,000 professionals with comprehensive knowledge in the principles of applied functional science. Whether you are physical therapists, personal trainers, athletic trainers, chiropractors, strength and conditioning coaches, coaches, physicians, physiotherapists, occupational therapists, osteopaths, physical therapy assistants, or kinesiologists, Our goal is to help you become the go-to movement professional. The Gray Institute podcast is questions-based. You send in your questions and we'll discuss them. If you're listening and have questions, email them to info at grayinstitute.com. We join Gary as he discusses optimal body movement and function for our clients. From Gray Institute, I'm Gary Gray and this is the Gray Institute podcast. First of all, on behalf of myself and the entire Gray Institute family, we want to wish you a happy new year, not only filled with happiness, but hope and health. Uh, We're thankful that we're journeying together, just trying to create better environments to enhance our patients and clients. And it's a great opportunity to concentrate on ways that we can provide better health and happiness and hope for our clients and patients as well. This particular podcast, we have two incredible questions, one that goes deep into the nitty gritty and one that starts superficial that hopefully we can take deep. The first one is from one of our previous question askers from Dr. Raful, a chiropractor who is now a part of our gift community. Really proud to have him. And he has this amazing ability to ask some great questions, but to ask them in a way that facilitates hopefully a practical um, and a helpful answer. Our second question is going to start out a little more superficial and it comes all the way from Russia, uh, but hopefully we can zoom in and uh, hopefully answer the question and uh, get some good thoughts and ideas strumming around. So let's start out with our first question from Brian Rafool. And I'm just going to read it as is because, again, it's a great question and it's just positioned beautifully. I think you would agree that it is important to expose the nervous system to potentially harmful stresses and motions. Helping an individual to be better prepared for the inevitable when it occurs at real speed. Is it just as important to expose individuals to ideally centrated joints, posture, and diaphragmatic control? Do you feel this is a waste of time because those gains will not effectively transfer in the heat of the battle? Whoa, that's a whoa. So this is going to take a little time to answer, but um, I'm not sure anything's a waste of time. We'll start from the bottom up, 
but there are priorities before we go to, I think, what we're alluding to here. So let's start with a, a couple stories and uh, see if I can uh, come up with a, uh, a pretty good answer that will help us all understand uh, this, this great question. Back in the 70s, I remember being in the clinic when a um, gentleman came through the door and said, I want to sell you this new piece of equipment. And anytime I see a salesperson, I try to give them my undivided attention and spend some time with them. Being a salesperson is hard. Um, and if they have something that's going to ultimately help me help my patients and clients, I'm all in. So I really try to dedicate time to them. And this gentleman presented to me what he considered the new balance platform. Now, back then, we didn't know really what computers were, but this thing was a balance board on a force plate that could just simply average center of gravity that went up into a computer that gave us a kind of a, a, a readout and to let us know when our basically our body was centralized. In other words, when we were perfectly balanced and we could kind of hold our balance in this small focal point. And it had like a bullseye that the goal was is to get wherever the center of gravity icon was to sit in that bullseye and keep it there. And then there was another circle a little further out and another circle bigger out. And then obviously the wider it was, the less quote unquote centralized balance you had. And I got on it and just tried it and uh, realized that I couldn't do it. I, I just, I couldn't keep, couldn't get that little thingamabob uh, in that middle target zone and kind of made a comment that says, you know, the, the harder I'm trying and the more I'm trying to limit my body's ability to move and to try to centralize that, the more uh, dysfunctional I feel. And he kind of laughed and he says, well, I've been presenting this now for a few months. And he says, it's interesting. He says, it seems the more athletic the person, when I go into facilities where there's high level athletes, the more difficulty they have getting that thing to even get close to what would be called the centralized part. In other words, to neutralize their movement and hold everything still and keep it what we would call the whole body in neutral. And I kind of smiled at him even back then and I said, I'm not sure we're supposed to be in neutral. I, 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 I know my car doesn't do well in neutral. If I put my car in neutral and I hit the gas, I don't go anywhere. And I said, my observation, at least in high school and college, of people who moved extremely well, we'll call somebody a high-level athlete, they seem to almost be a leopard kind of swaying back and forth and always getting ready to go somewhere or somewhere else. Never did they kind of limit their motion and kind of stay neutral. And so I started thinking, you know, I'm not sure I want somebody to be in neutral and I'm not sure I'd want to train somebody and maybe that would be a waste of time. Maybe that's not a good good word, a good place to go. I'm gonna put a little asterisk by that because we got to come back to that. At that same time, I uh, knew I had a foot fetish and I was developing orthotics for a number of my patients um, and uh, sadly, a number of them who didn't need it. Um, I got so excited about orthotics back in the 70s that 
um, I had a hammer in my hand and a lot of things started to look like a nail. And so I would look at people and get all excited and say, I think you need an orthotic. And I would design an orthotic for them and actually make it myself. Now, the bad thing about that is I got my hands on what was called Raudar. Raudar was a very rigid glass, not the cool plastics we have these days. And therefore, when I casted the patient and I made a positive mold of their foot and then I heated this Raudar on it, it was rigid. In other words, it literally kept them as close to that position that I put them in. Yes, the foot does move and integrates with an orthotic, but boy, this didn't allow a lot of things to go on above it. It captured the foot, and then when I put posting or the angles on the rear foot and the forefoot, I could really capture people, and I got all excited because I knew about this thing called subtalar neutral, and I knew how to look at it on the table, but I also knew how to evaluate it standing, and I literally could get my patients in a neutral position with the orthotic and to me everything looked beautifully aligned i'd look up at the knee and the hip and everything else and i was happy as a lark uh, i was happy as a lark until those patients started coming back through the door with complaints of other problems and initially with obviously having an ego and and being um self-centered and all the things that I am, I wasn't willing to blame it on myself. I'm thinking, well, something else happened. But late in the 70s, when I took a critical look at this, I'm realizing, you know what? By quote unquote, putting you in neutral, centrating your joints, as Brian uh, indicated in his great uh, question, I was limiting the ability of the foot to load effectively into pronation and then effectively into supination. And therefore, I was taking the effective load away from the hip in the ability for the hip to load and explode to do what it needed to do, such as walking and running and jumping and cutting. And therefore, taking that ability away from the foot, I inhibited greatly the movement and therefore inhibited the proprioceptors and therefore inhibited the ability to turn on muscles to control motion and therefore by sticking them in neutral with the orthotic I took away their lifeblood of neurological human movement and I caused many 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 secondary problems in many 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 people now uh, the good news is I still live in that community that I started in back in the 70s, and I get to run into some of those people so I can apologize to them. Uh, but the bad news is uh, a lot of them lost uh, confidence in me, knowing that, yeah, I did develop this orthotic for them, but all of a sudden with additional knee pain and hip pain and back pain and even shoulder and neck pain, they were smart enough to say, well, hey, I didn't have this before, but now that I saw Gary, I have it. And so that caused me to scratch my head. Back in the 70s also, uh, I was introduced to a concept of squatting and doing activities and keeping the knee in neutral or centrated. And what the whole idea was is if you keep the knee over the foot with everything this person does, then the possibility of them tearing their ACL is going to be reduced dramatically. Immediately when I looked at that, I go, wait a minute, that's the same mistake that 
I would be making by trying to train them to do that that I did with the orthotic. And then as I began to know more about the knee, knowing the knee was really the hip and knowing that the knee was really the foot, I realized that if when the foot went through its eversion or eversion being a part of pronation, that especially in stance, the knee would flex and abduct and internally rotate. And that would allow the muscles to be turned on, not only in the lower leg, but then that would allow the hip to flex and adduct and internally rotate to turn on the powerful hip muscles. So if I was able to, quote unquote, neutralize and centrate the knee over the foot, I would have caused damage again. I would have caused a problem. Now, bad news to that is there are still some systems, even to this day, where the injury reduction program for ACL still concentrates on trying to keep the knee relatively centrated and neutral, which I vehemently disagree with, mostly because of the mistakes I've made in understanding uh, biomechanics now. That's the last thing we want to do. In fact, Brian uh, kind of alludes to that by saying, uh, if we kind of keep them centrated and don't stimulate the right movement at the right time in the right plane, uh, in this case at the foot and the hip, uh, are, we, are we preparing them for the inevitable? So the inevitable, when I'm out running around playing basketball, uh, playing soccer, doing anything, the inevitable is when I watch normal people move that the knee never stays over the foot. The ne knee never stays neutral. In fact, the knee goes into a significant amount of internal rotation, flexion, and abduction. And in fact, some of the greatest athletes I can vision in my mind, it really knee really took off because they were loading their foot and their hip and their trunk better than the average bear. And so when we kind of think about that relative to the knee, we say, man, I don't, I, and I would say not only is it a waste of time to try, but I think it's a very dangerous thing. And then also in the 70s, seems like a lot of things happened in the 70s, didn't it? Um, I was introduced to this thing called lumbar neutral. And Initially, it made no sense to me because what we were taught to do, and I'm kind of giggling as I'm thinking about it, is we were taught to take a patient over to a wall and have their back against the wall and have them do a pelvic tilt and hold the pelvis in neutral in the sagittal plane and teach them not to move in the frontal plane and tell them that they're going to basically die if they twist or rotate in the transverse plane. And just intuitively, uh, knowing all the mistakes I'd already made and knowing the wisdom of not doing that for the knee, it made absolutely no sense to me that we would do that for the low back. Because again, if you're able to do that, you're instantaneously are limiting the motion of the hips and the thoracic spine. And again, if you limit those motions by trying to keep the lumbar spine neutral, you've just taken away the normal neurophysiological biomechanical load of the trunk system and the locomotor system and by trying to do that for the lumbar spine we are messing everything up uh, so i believe in that case that's a waste of time uh, as brian i think properly put now 
Here's what we got to remember. Those of us who did that, those me who did the orthotics, those people who came up with the, the knee concept of trying to keep the knee neutralized, uh, not let it go into too much valgus or varus, um, uh, so we'd prevent it or try to reduce the possibility of an ACL tear. And those of us who put our patients in lumbar neutral trying to pre- pre- uh, kind of protect the disc and protect it from all that abnormal motion, our heart was in the right spot. I, I, I know I didn't purposely do it to hurt my patients and clients, and I know the people who proposed the knee strategy and the lumbar strategy, and some people even have this for the upper back and shoulder, that our heart was in the right spot, but biomechanically we had no clue what was going on. We didn't know what the body really needed and it needed to not be in neutral at any time. So in the early 80s, we kind of came up with a, uh, a, a strategy based on truth. The truth is the body, and again, this is where the asterisk comes in, never functions in neutral. And therefore, we probably shouldn't try to get it in neutral, except then here's the asterisk in some cases. Um, and so therefore, we should gradually progress the movement of the human body at all the joints to prepare it for, as Brian said, the inevitable. When things happen at real speed and when we have to react, have we prepared the body to take advantage of the motion to turn on the proprioceptors, the proprioceptors then turn on the muscles to decelerate the motion so that motion that we thought was abnormal is really normal to turn on the proprioceptors, turn on the muscles to decelerate that abnormal motion. So for example, if we apply that to the knee now, if the knee does take off into too much abduction or some people might call it valgusine and internal rotation and putting the ACL at risk, yeah, that's not what we want. But we need to allow the knee to do that in order to turn on the motion at the hip and the feet in order to turn on the muscles so those muscles then control it. So that quote-unquote abnormal motion is good motion, but too much of a good thing is a bad thing. When that good motion goes way too far and we don't control it, then we have injury. That's what occurs at the foot. That's what occurs at the knee. That's what occurs at the low back. Neutral for the low back, again, with our heart being the right spot, we forgot to ask, How do we take the stress off the low back? And it's not limiting the motion of the low back. It's facilitating more normalized motion of the hips and the thoracic spine, which is really a part of the low back. Now, as soon as I say that, I recall a patient in the early 80s coming in who was a high-end ballerina. And she was part of the ballet group in the city that I was in at that time. And... As I'm coming up with these strategies to say it makes absolutely no sense to teach somebody to be in neutral, this young lady came in and said, but my sport demands that I get in neutral. In other words, if I have that motion at the hip and I let my knee do too much of that, and if I let my foot do that, and if I let my trunk do that, my the observation will be that's a sloppy ballet dancer and they're not doing what I want them to do. So that particular activity sport demanded then that they were able to put themselves 
in this centrated position of posture and of, as Brian said, even diaphragmatic control where everything was kind of beautifully orchestrated to look a certain way. And then from that particular posture, then be able to do things which immediately you go, wow, if you can do that, you're amazing. Well, if you know any of those kind of dancers, you would agree with me that it's a wow, you're amazing. Uh, when you see dancers that need to stay in neutral, but then they still need to move or locomote or bound or jump in different places on the stage, you go, how are they doing that without loading their body? Well, they're doing that in a way that they're stressing other parts of the body, and that's why dance injuries are significant. Because we're taking the hip and we're taking the trunk and we're taking the feet and saying, we want you to look like this so it looks pretty for the dance, but we want you to be able to do that and do this without loading the proprioceptors and turning on the muscles to control that. And therefore, we're going to beat up other parts of your body. And if you've ever been a dancer, you're saying amen to that. If you've ever treated dancers, you go, wow, that makes a ton of sense. And all of a sudden we go, so in that case, I don't believe it is a waste of time. However, with unless there's a real good reason that somebody needs to be positioned uh, in a certain neutralized, centrated posture, then the, the goal is, is to always go through neutral, never stay in neutral. That's kind of a saying we came up with. And that's, again, what you do with your car. Uh, when I get my car, it's in park. If I want to go to drive, I go to drive. The thing's going to go forward. But I'll go through neutral to get it to go to reverse. I go reverse, and then I go back through neutral to put it in drive, and I go forward again. I never go, well, hey, I'm going to stick this thing in neutral and go somewhere. It doesn't happen, and strangely enough, the body doesn't happen that way either. So, again, I'll kind of repeat the question, and then I'll kind of stop and give little mini answers, but it says, I think you would agree that it's important to expose the nervous system to potentially harmful stresses and motions. Amen. Uh, boy, Brian, you can't say it any better. The neuromusculoskeletal system must progressively be put into the positions. We call them, um, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to curse on the podcast here, so I'll use another word, oh poop transformational zones. In fact, that, that was a, uh, using the SH uh, blank T uh, word, that was a phrase given to us by our gift fellow, um, Steve Stricker, he basically said the same thing. In order to protect our athletes and our clients and patients, we have to progressively get him into those, oh crap, oh poop transformational zones and teach their neurological system how to control that and bring them back home to protect them so they never knew they were in harmful way. So. I agree. Brian says, I think you would agree that it's important to expose the nervous system, potential harm for stress osmosis. Amen, amen, amen. And we have to have a strategy for that. And, and we have to understand the power of tweakology to gradually allow that to happen. We can't immediately take them into those transformational zones that are dangerous. We have to have a huge strategy. And then he says, helping the individual to be better prepared for the inevitable. You got That's key. So it's going to happen out on the court. It's going to happen out on the field. It's going to happen in real life anyway. While they're in the clinic, we got to get them not only prepared for that, but we have to develop a buffer zone. So strangely enough, in the clinic, instead of 
trying to keep it neutralized and centrated and safe and in the backyard, we got to take our clients and our patients out to the front yard where there's a road and danger and basically give prepare them for the inevitable and prepare them from eat for even more of the inevitable to give them a buffer zone of protection um so again I, i'm just kind of uh, fascinated by how well brian asks this question and then the question goes is it just as important to expose individuals to ideally centrated joints posture and diaphragmatic control i think i've answered that uh depends and only in the minimal case where we have to be able to function in that centrated neutral position, would I do that? And everybody else, I would, I would not do it at all uh, to protect them, to make them safer. Again, you know, kind of just kind of glancing at it and not understanding uh, neurological biomechanics. You would say, well, it sure be nice to keep the knee there. Well, if the knee's not going to stay there when you go out. Uh, into real life, then you got to prepare it for real life. So it's kind of ridiculous to try to keep the foot in neutral, the knee in neutral, and uh, the uh, uh, low back in neutral. Hopefully you heard a little uh, music there. I'm not sure if somebody was kind of applauding uh, the uh, the answer or trying to create some music to say, let's let's move on to something else. But I'll just finish with the very last question. Do you feel it's a waste of time because those gains will not effectively transfer in the heat of battle? I think you couldn't say it any better than that, Brian. We prepare everybody for the heat of battle and everybody's battle is different. Everybody's an individual. Everybody has different goals and needs and wants. And we have to find out what their battle is and our job as movement practitioners professionals that understand human movement is to understand the body so well that we can start where we get them moving, not staying in neutral, but get them moving in all three planes of motion, loading uh, to turn on proprioceptors in order to allow them to get into those old crap, old poop transformational zones that we know they're ultimately going to get in anyway, and know that we have neurologically and uh, dynamically and muscularly and skeletally train the body to be, be able to handle the, as Brian says, the heat of the battle. Uh, so I just love that question. I, I could probably mumble on for a long time and probably that music would come back real quick and uh, try to get me to move on. So Brian, thanks for a great uh, question and hopefully uh, uh, you uh, enjoyed the answer. I enjoyed answering it because uh, it brought back uh, some bad memories of me really uh, not doing a good job with patients and clients and it brought back some really good memories knowing that I have uh, concentrated on getting uh, the people who trust me ready for the heat of the battle. The second question comes from uh, a person who has coined themselves Jim Rat from Russia. And Jim Rat basically asked a real simple question, but it's not all that simple because Jim Rat basically says, what will I be able to do after completing 3D maps? Well, first of all, thanks for the question, Jim Rat. And I love the uh, question because it has, the, the question says, what will I be able to do? Uh, 
And to be able to do something effectively and efficiently means you have to know, first of all, you have to have knowledge. You then have to have strategies relative to that knowledge. Then you have to know that the techniques emanate from those strategies so that you'll be able to confidently do it. And that's how we designed 3D Maps. Now, as most people know, 3D Maps is a uh, acronym for three-dimensional uh, movement analysis and performance system, which simply means that we think we have come up with a scheme to look at how the human body moves at all of the 66 critical motions that it needs to come up with a game plan on how to get the body better to move better in order to limit pain, enhance function, enhance performance, and create opportunities where we decrease the potential of injury. And going through 3D maps, you learn a lot and you learn what we call truths. Because if you learn the principles and the truths, then the strategies become very obvious and then the techniques become even more obvious and, and the, you, the practitioner, completing 3D maps and being certified in 3D maps will be able to say, wow, I'm able to do all of this because I know the strategies that led me to do this because I know the truths that led me to the strategies that led me to the techniques. So after completing 3D maps, you'll not only be able to do a lot, but you'll be able to empower your patients and clients a lot because what you do, you'll be doing with competence and confidence. Those are kind of a, two key words. Uh, I've talked to a number of movement professionals who have been certified in other uh, what we'd call movement analysis uh, programs and certifications. Um, and basically, they said they were taught to memorize these seven tests. But when I ask them why they do the tests, they say, I have no idea. Well, to then build upon those assessments, if you have no idea why you're doing them, is impossible. And so the ability to do what your patient or your client needs is severely limited. And especially if the do doesn't make sense to what you want to do. So I, in, in one of those particular tests, the person is down on all fours, pointing their hand forward or pointing their foot back. And I ask them, so why are you doing that? Well, I don't know. Uh, I think it's something to do with core stability. I said, yeah, but core stability for what? And, and it's maybe core stability for if you if your goal today was to walk on your hands and knees, but there's no transfer at all, movement-wise, uh, proprioceptive-wise, function-wise, to how the core functions in upright function. And if they do that and you assess them, and they don't do it well, what are you gonna have them do? Do do more of that, crawl around more? And so they kind of tilt their head and they go, well, I've never thought of that. And so the question with anything is after completing this thing, after engaging in this thing, after doing this thing, what in the world will I be able to do? And that's what Jim Rat asked. So it's real easy. In 3D maps, you learn the truth behind human movement how to discern what is functional and what is not. That's in the huge range. Uh, how to analyze somebody with six movements 
and determine what their body's able to do for all forms of function, not only analyze the movements relative to the 66 motions of mobility, but 66 motions of stability. And because 3D Maps includes a comprehensive rehabilitative and performance system, immediately you'll be able to say, aha, this is what I wanna do next, and here's what I want to empower my patient and client with. One of the toughest things for me, and I think the toughest things for all of us, is once I get an idea of what's going on, what is the best thing to do? And so there's a lot of things to do. In other words, I was brought up in protocols, and so if somebody came with a problem, I'd kind of pretend I was evaluating them and write a bunch of things down to make the insurance company happy or to make somebody happy, but then I'd follow this protocol because it was something to do. Uh, but I wasn't doing it. Somebody else was telling me to do it. So it wasn't what am I able to do. Is In that case, it was what was I able to read and get somebody to do that made absolutely no sense to me. Being able to do something significant re involves understanding why we're doing it and not just being told to do it. Again, as a little kid, sometimes our parents says, I want you to do this. And we'd say, why? They would many times shake their head and says, you don't need to know why. I told you to go take the garbage out right now and I need you to do that. Well, okay. Um, we're, we're looking for the why. So the why behind the what is as important actually more important than the what. And so completing 3D maps will give any movement professional the confidence to know that they'll know what function is. They'll be able to identify those things out there, other certifications, other exercises, other activities, other strategies that make absolutely no sense to science. They're just a conglomeration of movements that somebody put together and thought, well, if we add all these up, we're going to come up with something. And anybody with an honest heart will look at it and go, I'm not sure that's going to get me anywhere. It will get you to be able to do what you need for each individual uh, based on what their needs are, what their wants are, and uh, what the demands of the activity they want to involve in. And that's the beauty of it. It not only allows you to do what you need to do, but it gives you the confidence to then to do the next thing. Because once I understand what I want to do, and I am able to create the environment where my patient and client, so to speak, do it, then the next question is, so what do I do next? And, there's, and 3D Maps allows you to say, if you do this and they do that, then you can do this next immediately as a professional. I go, and that's what I want. I want to use my professional expertise to determine what they need and what we need to do. I need to observe what they just did and then determine what they need to do next. And that's the beauty of 3D Maps. It allows us to do what we need to do based on pure science, based on evidence-based science, based on things that make sense to even Pooh Bear, where Pooh Bear with a very little brain and big heart goes, yep, that makes sense that that's what we're gonna do. And once we're able to do that, it makes sense we're going to do that next. And if we're able to do that next, it makes even more sense that we get to do that next. And believe it or not, all of a sudden, we all get a smile on our face, along with Pooh Bear, and say, now this person is doing something that they couldn't have done a little bit ago. Their pain is reduced. Their motion is enhanced. Their function is, grad is significantly uh, improved. And they have a big smile on their face. And because you dedicated 
your time and effort into certifying in yourself in the 3D maps, you're now empowering this person to do things that they never dreamed of doing in a way that they never dreamed they could ever do because you now know how to do after completing 3D maps. So Jim Rant, hopefully that was helpful. And uh, those of you who are kind enough to listen to the podcast, hopefully that's helpful to you. Strangely enough, we didn't hear the music on that one. So uh, maybe we didn't run on with too many run-on sentences. Or maybe they just got tired of calling us it a little bit. So uh, keep the questions coming. We got a number of questions. Uh, I wish I could just keep answering questions. We have a, a zillion of them here ready to uh, go. Uh, but we'll have to wait till the next podcast to take on a couple of more of the questions. So please uh, uh, send your questions in, and uh, we'll do our best at uh, taking a look at them, smiling, uh, trying to share with you based on our years of experience, uh, mostly my years of experience of making mistakes and potentially doing the wrong thing to hopefully uh, humbling myself a pinch, stepping back and go, okay, what really needs to be done here in order to help this person? And uh, that's what it's all about. Uh, we're here to serve others, and uh, but we need to serve ourselves first and to gain the knowledge and to work hard at this trade uh, in order to know even more about this miracle we call the human body, in order that we can empower the human bodies who come into our midst and trust us. This is John. Thanks for joining us here on the Gray Institute podcast. At Gray Institute, our goal is to do one thing the best we can, and that is to help you become the go-to movement professional. If you have a question for future podcasts or questions about anything Gray Institute offers, including education, live or online specializations, or mentorships, please email us at info at grayinstitute.com. If we use your question on air, we will send you some cool stuff. Be sure to look for our next podcast coming soon. Have a great day.